0: This is episode 227 of the Beyond the Food Show, and today we talk healthyism, the desire to be healthy gone wrong, with an expert, Dana Sturtevant. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Going to Beyond the Food Show. I'm Stephanie Dozier, clinical nutritionist and emotional eating expert, creator of the Going to Beyond the Food Method, and founder of the Going to Beyond the Food Academy. Corporate executive turned health expert with my own journey with weight, body image, and food. It's now my mission to help smart, successful women like you live confidently right now and unconditionally. Ready, sister? Let's do this. Hello, sisters. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm very excited about this episode. Uh, and introducing to you the concept of healthyism with our guest expert, because I think it's going to shake up a lot of people out into this world. This is something that is just starting to arise in the world of health, intuitive eating and diet culture, because really, most people think that healthyism is actually good for them. And some of you may actually be already on the journey of, I know diet doesn't work. I'm not going to worry about what I'm eating and counting calories and wanting to lose weight. I'm going to pursue health instead. I know that's what I did. Probably eight years ago, I realized that diet wasn't working. And then I discovered the world of wellness And I went right deeply in it, studied it and attended workshop and spent an enormous amount of money consulting with some of the top leader in the world in my pursuit of optimum health. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. This whole concept of pursuing health as a sign of your worth, as a sign of what you think you should be doing like your moral value of wanting to be healthy. And for many of us, the underneath layer is, well, if I'm healthy, I'm going to be at a healthy weight, which means I'm going to lose weight. But when you're on the pursuit of health and, and you go into the world of healthism, you don't publicly talk about the fact that you are still expecting a weight loss behind this pursuit of health, because that's not, quote, politically correct. But secretly, in your own mind, you expect to be in a healthy body, which means less weight, because that's what you see everywhere, right? All those gurus of health on Instagram and on Google, like all being in the thin body. Let me ask you this. When is the last time you saw a health expert in a non-conforming thin body? I know for me, when I attended all my health expert conferences for professional, I was most of the time the woman in the bigger body in the room. Out of thousands of people, I was the one in a non-conforming thin body everybody else that was teaching health was in a thin body so what is the ramification of this pursuit of health the image of health that we are holding within us and how does that show up in our day-to-day life and what is the difference between health and self-care right? Because we still got to take care of ourselves. But when does it cross the line to be perhaps dangerous for our health and too much? That's all the topic we're going to explore today with our expert, Dana. Dana is the co-founder of Be Nourish. She's a registered dietitian, educator and trainer who work focused on humanizing health care. And she has a great program called Body Trust uh, that brings in together health, trauma-informed practice, and healing modality that encourage a health version towards compassion, weight-inclusive model of self-care. And it's about really healing the side effect of many years of chronic dieting of weight loss, and this pursuit of health, you're gonna love her. Uh, It's somebody that I've been looking up a lot to. She also has a uh, online conference that's coming up for any of you who listen to the interview, like, yeah, I want more. She is putting together every year the body trust summit, and you will find the link to register for that in the show note, you can head over to stephaniedote.com slash 227 or go to the show note in your application and register for that. It's totally free. It's seven days of free talk from health experts that are lined up within what we're going to talk about today. So how can we take care of ourselves uh, without tripping over into this dark side of healthy living? Also, one last thing I want to mention before we get into this interview, you're going to hear me talk uh, a fair bit over the next few episodes on a health mastery program that I'm going to put out into the world. Uh, So this program has been worked on for the last year internally within our clients. We've never publicized it to the public because we wanted to refine it. Uh, do a few uh, rounds of it we actually did two rounds of this program with our internal client consistently improving it and after a year of work we are ready to put it out into the world so march the 8th is going to be the date where it's going to be available for you to um Register for it and enjoy this program. So, it's called the Health Mastery, a weight neutral approach to health. So, look forward to that, of me talking more about that on the next show, and also um, for you to be able to visit the space where uh, this program will be available. So, I'm very excited about that. And this episode is a great introduction to how we can talk about health and the concept of going beyond the food, right? So, Without any further ado, let's go and listen to this very powerful interview with Dana. Welcome to the show, Dana. Hi, good to be here. Thanks for having me. It's an honor and a privilege to have you here on the show. I um, came across Dana a year and a half ago uh, with a webinar she was doing on healthism And I've been a big fan since then of her and her organization, and um, we've been waiting to get her on the podcast, and it's finally here today. So great honor to have you with us.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: And you're the perfect person to tackle a subject that we have yet to discuss on the podcast, which is this whole concept of healthism, and we'll get into explaining what it is, uh, but it it is so important for all the listeners that are coming here from a place of having been on perhaps the Whole30, restrictive diet, keto, paleo, and are really having a hard time navigating this whole permission to eat from the world of intuitive eating. So without further ado, let's dive in. So what exactly is healthism? Oh, it's a big we'll white question. With
1: the big, right? We'll start with the big question. <laughs> yes. Um healthism is a is was a ter- is a term that was first coined by Robert Crawford in 1980 so it's a concept that's been around for a while um and it's he defined it as the preoccupation with personal health as a primary often the primary focus for the definition and achievement of well-being a goal which is to be attained primarily through modification of lifestyles so we see a lot of this like lifestyle medicine, lifestyle specialist, a behavior specialist. Um, so he, uh, that's how Robert Crawford who first came up with this word defined it. Um, a few things I'll, I'll say about the word healthism is that the, the, the ism on the end implies that it's an ideology and not a scientific subject. Hmm. Um, and really, when I think about healthism, I think about a couple of things. I think about how we live in a culture that believes our health is the be-all and end of, end-all of our existence, and that if we are not pursuing health, there's something wrong with us, um, that we should feel morally obligated to pursue and perform health behaviors, and um, And it's really a lot this belief that if you get sick, it's your fault. And if you get diagnosed with a disease, there's something you can do with your lifestyle to fix it.
0: I know right now there's a lot of people listening and they're saying, well, well, it's true, like if I, for example, we'll take the case of diabetes, if I control my sugar intake, I will be able to control diabetes or I may not have got diabetes. Like, how do we deal with how how do we help people wrap their head around this? Because it is ingrained in us since we're like very young. Yes. Yeah.
1: Years ago, I was in a training with Lucy Aframore and she talked about that. She said, uh, Lucy uh, co-authored the book Body Respect with Linda Bacon, for those of you who are listening. And um, she said that. Um, a better term for metabolic syndrome would be oppression syndrome. Ooh. That living, being faced like people of color being faced with racism on a daily basis, microaggressions around race on a daily basis, people living in poverty, people exposed to toxins, that these factors being Paid a, a poor wage. These factors impact health more than lifestyle. That we we live in a culture that sees health as the property and responsibi- responsibility of the individual, and that's our medical complex. And we while ignoring the social determinants of health. And lifestyle behaviors can account for something like five to twenty-five percent of the difference that we see in health uh, markers. But we live in a culture that like that talks like lifestyle. Like ninety-five percent of diseases are lifestyle related, and so I think, you know, companies uh, are getting out of taking a wider lens view of how we help people with their health when we just solely rely on personal responsibility and lifestyle rhetoric around control, controlling illness. That's not to say that somebody with diabetes, um, there are some things that they could do to help them manage their blood sugars um, to reduce the risk of having some of the secondary complications related to diabetes. Um, and I think the field of diabetes has really fucked people up when it comes to their relationship with food and their bodies. And if people didn't have disordered eating before they were diagnosed with diabetes, they're certainly going to have some disordered eating after their diagnosis because people are starting going to start to food police them. you you we have these diabetes police. We have a lot of misinformation out there about diabetes and what uh, what helps people. Um, manage their blood sugars. Like a lot of people say, you, you shouldn't be eating that, or you can't eat sugar, and all of these things that actually aren't true. Um, and so, you know, again, I think healthism has the medical complex and nutritionists, and really falling back on lifestyle rhetoric while ignore, ignoring the social determinants of health, which have a far greater impact on people's health and well being than their diet. There's even been some research to show that, um, um, on the Mediterranean diet, there was a, there was a study done in 2017. It was a pretty large study and it was published in the international journal, journal of epidemiology. And they found that the Mediterranean diet, this is just one example that the Mediterranean diet reduces the risk of cardiovascular disease, but only if you are rich or highly educated. Oh. So we can, you know, we might sit here and talk about the Mediterranean diet and it being like the health. But if you live in poverty, it doesn't matter if you're eating the Mediterranean diet.
0: Because of the oppression and I guess the stress that it caused on the human body. Yes. The
1: allostatic load that Mm -hmm. they sometimes call it weathering people, you know, that have to face stigma and um, discrimination.
0: Yeah,
1: um, that this has an impact on their well being, and over time, it there's a load that it carries, and it impacts our health and well being. Absolutely,
0: or even economy, economical factor of being living in poverty, right? Yep. Forget the fact that you can't buy as much vegetable as you would like, just the simple fact that you're going from paycheck to paycheck to paycheck to paycheck that has a huge load on our body and that impacts our tissues and our biology. That's basically what you're saying.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, And yet, you know, the way medicine and people talk about it right now, it's all about lifestyle. And like, if, if you get sick, there's some kind, you know, if you get diagnosed with a chronic illness, there's some magical way of eating, you must be allergic to something, or maybe you need to filter the water or, you know, some there's something in your lifestyle that's done like that we have control. I mean, at the end of the day, I think healthism is rampant in our society. And it's interesting that it was coined in 1980. Because I mean, good God, I live in the Pacific Northwest in the United States. This is the land of orthorexia. And orthorexia is probably going to be a diagnosable eating disorder someday. It's not really about weight. It's about morality and purity and cleanliness and eating a people who obsess about eating correctly. And I think when we look at healthism and why it's gotten worse since the term was coined is because people want to feel in control. We don't like to feel vulnerable. We want to believe that there's something we can do to prevent bad things from happening to us. And it creates a lot of hustling. Um, And I'm not saying lifestyle doesn't have some impact on our health and well being. And I like to tell people like, you get to have a personal response, like, you get to have a personal food philosophy and a way of eating that feels right to you and makes you feel good. Um, just, just keep it personal. It's yours. You don't have to share it with the world, you know. But I think when people feel like they've found the answer—in air quotes—to the so-called problem, whatever it is, sometimes it's the the size of the body. Sometimes it's an illness um, that people want, you know, want to get it on pulpits and preach to the world that they found this magical answer to solve all of our problems. And I just think it's, it's so much more complicated. Not to mention that the people who worry about this are primarily white people, and privileged people.
0: Exactly. Higher class people. Can we talk about this whole association between healthism and moral virtue? Because in my own, so I've been in practice now for eight years, and I've had different as I heal my own relationship to food, I've changed my practice. But what I have noticed is that people anchor around their health status for some time of from some type of worth of moral virtue, moral value. And if it's not their health, then it's their body size. But we're seeking to find our worth either in our health or our body size or image.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, a question we often pose in talks and workshops, et cetera, is, is, you know, are we as a society hustling for our health or are we really hustling for our worthiness? Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Yes, it's huge. And we put, and, you know, people who have orthorexia, again, the obsession with eating correctly and like this moral superiority, our culture tends to put people like that on pedestals. And it can be really hard um, when when I'm working with someone and I'm suspecting that orthorexia is, is part of their eating disorder, it can be really hard for people to come to terms with that because they get so much accolades and adoration around it. And even I heard, I saw, I was on social media and somebody put, um, you know, what are you wanting to cultivate more of in, in the new year? And somebody put discipline and I was like, ugh, fuck discipline. Ugh, it's such a gross word. And and the person who had done the post, she's like, oh, I hate that word. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I hate that word, too.
0: Well, it you know, assume we you're not good enough. Right.
1: And we put people who appear to be disciplined um, on pedestals you know, we, we we see that as morally superior or something. And so a lot of people are striving to be that. But many of us um, are hungry and want foods that aren't in the in the so called good food category. And so we end up going swinging from this kind of rigidity and perfectionistic thinking around food over to this fuck it plan and you know, whatever. And then we're like, Oh, see, I can't be controlled. I can't be trusted. And then we swing back over to rigidity and perfectionism. And over time, I think people, um, the number of foods that they're willing to allow themselves to have in the home and eat becomes smaller and smaller and smaller.
0: Absolutely. And I see that with, with clients or patients that start with wanting to eat healthy, then they go to low carb, then they escalate to keto. And then they have an autoimmune protocol. And then their food spectrum becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. And their worth and their disease is not getting better. Their health status is not getting better. It's actually getting worse because they feel worse and worse and worse and out of control. Yes. Yeah, and, and
1: yet our our natural reaction is to kind of pull the reins in even tighter yes. and make it harder. And somebody somebody who rides horses recently told me that when you pull the reins in tighter, the, the horse goes faster. So it just speeds up the disorder, right? But it's not our natural reaction. Um, you know, it's not instinctual when we're struggling to adhere to these food rules that we believe are the right thing to think that the food rules are the problem. No. You know, most of us think I, I must need more food rules and we make it even harder. Most people don't think, you know, especially in a world that uses, you know, loves to throw around the, the concept of food addiction oh, yeah. while there's no evidence to support it. That's not biased. Um, you know, that's why I think we, we, we hear more and more about food addiction and sugar addiction is because People, because people are dieting and they're feeling deprived and they're rebelling against it on some level.
0: Well, let's talk about nutrition, nutritionism. Okay, French, French is coming out here. Nutritionism, right? This, this reductionist approach to look at food as a nutrient instead of a whole, which goes right alongside with healthism.
1: Yes. And again, the ism implies an ideology, right? Not a scientific subject, but an ideology. And I think when it comes to the field of nutrition and so much around health that I, you know, what I'm really wanting providers to lean into and, and people to lean into is there's so much that we don't know. And there's a lot more that we don't know than we know. Nutrition is a really young field. Yes. It's created by white people often upper middle, upper class white people. Actually, I was just looking at the Academy for Nutrition and Dietetics sent out a diversity and inclusion um, a survey. And 95% of dietitians within that organization are white. And, and likely many of them are very thin, <laughs> cisgendered white folks.
0: It's funny, I was doing the same research yesterday for a presentation that I was going to be doing to the professional in my groups. And it is like, how do we, and we'll talk about that later, but we're thinking about this whole concept of diversity and body acceptance, yet the people out there are the opposite of what the consumer of that particular field is. Yeah.
1: And they're the ones asking the questions yes. and deciding what questions get asked in the research. They're the one interpreting the data through their biased, privileged lens. Yeah, I know. I remember a few years ago we went to a, a, a symposium about gut health and we did a similar talk about how to help without harming. And um, I just at one point I said, you know, Are there any people, uh, are there any non-white people who are worried about their gut health? Like, I don't see any any people with marginalized identities in this room that are obsessed about gut health and worried about their guts and obsessing about their SIBO or whatever the diagnosis of the day is right now. And I'm not, I mean, I think there's some interesting stuff coming out of this gut microbiome research. But again, it's really it's really, um, new and people just, when it comes to health, we just love to jump on bandwagons and like, it's, we're so indoctrinated into diet culture that people don't even see keto as a fad.
0: No, no, no. You know, they see it as a healing protocol.
1: Yeah. They don't see the whole 30 as a fad. They didn't see paleo as a fad. Um, and some, I just learned that the person who created the Whole Thirty was uh, is just a lay person who had a heroin addiction and decided to put together this protocol. Yes. And doctors, uh, doctors recommend Whole Thirty back in the day. I don't know if they are anymore, but doctors are basically selling out to the dieting industry.
0: So uh, let's, you know, let's talk about that because the people listening to this are somewhat familiar with diet culture and the notion of weight loss. But what we also need to understand is diet culture is not just selling the weight loss, but we're selling healthyism. And, and I think it's Christy Harrison who calls it wellness diet, this new mm-hmm. version of diet culture, which is exactly what you're describing selling yeah. optimum health.
1: Yes. Yes. Diet diet culture is a shape shifter. It It is constantly shifting, and the dieting industry knows that the word diet has become a four-letter word. They even know that saying weight loss is likely not a good um, thing anymore. You know, Weight Watchers supposedly rebranded to WW, although I was driving by. Uh, driving the other day and I saw a weight watcher sign out front of a thing. And I was like, well, that's not a rebrand. I thought you rebranded. I thought you weren't about weight anymore, weight watchers. And yet here's your sign that says weight watchers come in. So, um, I think, um, you know, I, the other thing I want to say is that many of the people that come have come to me for 15 years to, for help with their relationship with food and their bodies Um, believe that they gave up dieting ages ago and that they've just been trying to eat healthier or watch what they eat.
0: Can we talk about that, please? Yes.
1: And what they don't, when we look at the qualities of a dieting mind, they look up at me and they go, oh my God, I've been dieting this whole time. And I'm like, yes, there's a mindset that we cultivate and our culture very much has this dieting mindset where we think of um, calories as good and, you know, we th- we think more about calories and making up for foods. We judge a day of eating as good or bad. We, um, we're preoccupied with food and weights and eating. We drink lots of water and coffee and other things to numb our hunger. You know, we divide foods into good, bad, right, wrong, healthy, unhealthy. Um, we exercise solely for the purpose of making up for our so-called mistakes in eating. And when you when people look at this, they genuinely have thought they haven't dieted for years. And then we look at this mentality and they're like, oh, my God, I have been dieting. I'm not on this non-diet mentality. There's nothing over here that I relate to. And that, for many people, is is when the shift starts to happen is like, They've just been colluding with dieting the whole time. And healthcare is really good at colluding. Lots of medical providers are good at colluding with the dieting mind. And it's not possible to heal uh, the dieting mind while focusing on our weight and changing the size and shape of our body. We cannot heal our relationship with food and our body while trying to control the size and shape of our bodies.
0: Can we heal our relationship to food while trying to heal our health condition with food?
1: It's complicated. Sometimes yes. we, we say not now because um, there's sometimes some foundational healing that has to occur for people to be able to move towards health behaviors without colluding with the dieting mind. And so sometimes, no, we can't hold that up. And that's a lot of times our talks on, you know, ethical considerations and treatment planning is really encouraging providers to not just throw out dietary advice willy-nilly. When we mess with people's food, we mess with their lives. We mess with their culture. We mess with their history. We mess with their minds, right? We animals go to a trough and feed human beings sit at a table and dine together. We grieve through food. We celebrate through food. We know more about our culture from food. And so to dumb it down to its nutrition, nutrients, and rob it of any meaning is is unethical and harmful. And even when I've had clients who've told their doctors that they have a history of an eating disorder or an active eating disorder. Providers will throw out dietary recommendations anyway, not realizing that we, you know, we many people need to heal before they can start to move towards some of these health behaviors without it being rooted in their eating disorder. And I <laughs> eating disorders are life-threatening conditions. Right, like I had a client who had small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, the SIBO. Right, mm-hmm. she's had a long history of an eating disorder. That's, but that she's been hospitalized in and out of treatment for years. Um, um, but still actively engaged in her eating disorder. Was diagnosed with SIBO, and um, and the providers wanted to give her a nutrition protocol. Mm -hmm. And I said, absolutely not. (laughs) SIBO will not kill her. Her eating disorder will kill her. She has almost died multiple times. You don't just throw out a nutrition protocol for something that can be managed with an antibiotic or something. Um, Yeah. And so now I'm getting in my rant phase and I'm going to (laughs) like pause and breathe and see what see what you want to say or
0: share. Well, I think what I want to ask, and I want us to reflect on is what's driving this. Because if we look back, I mean, 150 years ago, this whole concept of chasing health and optimum health and food as medicine, nutritionism, none of that was existing, right? This is a fairly new concept in our society. And it's not even across the world. It's only in first world country where we can afford to be picky about our food and eating a certain way for millions of other people they don't have that choice in front of them so what really drives that in our culture our society here that we are spending so much time and focus on our health instead of life um
1: It's hard to say. I think class is really wrapped up in this, like when we look at, you know, higher class pe- yes. people who make more money, um like when you're not uh worried about getting your basic needs met, right? There's more time. Yes. And I've been wanting to do a rant on Facebook about how nutrition is not a hobby. And if nutrition is your hobby, you need a new hobby. Oh,
0: please do the. Do you know what here? I'm? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like
1: nutrition is not a hobby, and we are willing to take nutrition advice from people who have no background information about it, who just have read books written by people who've had three hours of a nutrition class, right? Um. So, uh, I. I like the fact that you know we wouldn't take our car to somebody who's not a mechanic, but we're willing to like take nutrition advice from some somebody who created the whole thirty who has no background in nutrition other than maybe it's a hobby, but has never studied biochemistry, doesn't have you know any kind of degree in in the science. Not that some of the science that I was going to say my is problematic. I mean, I you know.
0: Yeah. or doesn't have any training in the psychology of eating or understand the impact of food beyond nutritionism. Right.
1: Yeah. So, you know, coming back to your question, like why has it gotten so bad? Yeah. I don't know. I think. Um, I think our, our preoccupation with thinness yeah, and as, as our society, um, you know, over time, they've, they've adjusted the BMIs and like magically overnight, like hundreds of thousands of people became, you know, one of the O words. I'm not going to say it. I don't use the O mm-hmm. words, um, but it, by definition became, uh, you know, uh, pathologized by their body size overnight because they made the, their BMI requirements smaller. And harder to get into the normal um, BMI range, quote unquote normal. I'm not a big fan of the word yeah. normal, but I think our preoccupation with thinness and this kind of the war on people's size and um, the preoccupation with the thin ideal under the guise of health has pr- is probably the biggest thing. And people, you know, struggling with shame. I think we have an epidemic of shame. I know Brene Brown has said that you know the the addiction of the century is perfectionism, and I think um, you know for for some of us who maybe have um, more disposable income, more privilege, uh, that we can spend time on these things, we can have nutrition as a hobby, um, and then we love to get up on our pulpits and preach it. It's like a religion. Mm-hmm. Right now, like I would, when new dietitians reach out, people who want to study nutrition reach out to me to, to pick my brain and yeah. I can take you to coffee. I'm thinking about going. I'm like, girl, if you want to go into this field, you do not want to talk to me. <laughs> you do not, because I would not go into this field if I could go back.
0: Well, I think the way in which you practice, right, your field is in the way that we can you can truly help people which is the whole relationship like you're going in healing how the current feel is getting people sick right psychologically emotionally yeah. disconnection um i think yeah. we just have to like for me when i ask or when people ask about becoming a nutritionist i'm like do you truly understand how food works in the human if you only think it's like micronutrients it's like way beyond that. And if you're not willing to go there, then perhaps that's not the right field for you because you're just going to do more arm than good. Yes,
1: yes. And so many people don't go through the four-year degree and get all the biochemistry background and take the anatomy and physiology and do the labs and all of that to really understand it. They go to like the 10-month certificate yeah. program where they get fo- more focused on you know, these micronutrients and, and, you know, pseudoscience.
0: But even, I don't know in the United States, but does, is even psychology of eating taught now in the programs? I know in Canada, it's not.
1: I, I doubt it. It's just, I mean, I think it's just disordered people. Yes. Prof- you know, professing disordered shit. Yeah. Um, and people without a nuanced analysis of all the factors that impact health and well-being. You know, you can put a 100 people, um, you can put a 100 doctors in a room and ask them to define health, Mm. and they're not going to be able to agree on what the definition is. It's a really personal thing. And I think when people bring up that word to me, I'm like, well, tell me what you mean when you are saying you want to be healthier. What does that mean to you? Does that mean you want to have more connection in your life? Does that mean you want to have more energy? Does it mean you want to reduce your risk of disease? Like, what is like, what does that mean? It's a word that we throw around. Um, you know, we amputate people's stomachs with bariatric surgery under the name of health. We sign p- people up for a lifetime a lifetime of nutrient malabsorption under the guise of health. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, we're willing to amputate children's stomachs, fat children's stomachs, and sign fat children up for a a lifetime of nutrient malabsorption, supposedly under the name of health, to improve their health. It's such bullshit.
0: If I can take a stab at my personal opinion as to why we're so obsessed. And then, yes, I,
1: I wanted to ask you, I'm like, I'm curious to hear what you have to say.
0: And it's going to get us into your the other thing into which you teach very well. Um, But for me is that we keep looking outside of ourselves for happiness that uh-huh. it is within a report that we're optimally healthy, that it is within a weight on the scale. We keep chasing being in ourselves, being in connection with our own self, trusting our innate body wisdom, respecting our body. We keep seeking outside. And this is just not with health and food. It's it's a phenomenon of society and today, right? It's always about being outside of ourselves. Yeah. And this whole journey of coming back within is scary as shit for people Mm -hmm. right to like to rekindle a relationship with yourself and look within for your work look within is terribly scary for people and i think that fuels off healthism and it fuels off nutritionism and tendness and it fuels all of this because we don't want to go back within
1: Yeah. So it's distracting. And I think it's, it's, yeah, I know for the people that I've worked with, it's a great distraction from some of the things that are really impacting their health and well-being, like the fact that they're in a really shitty marriage, Mm -hmm. but they'd rather call food the problem or their bodies the problem or the fact that they, you know, have a boss that really sucks and stresses them out of, every day, but they don't have control over that. So they're going to focus on controlling the size and shape of their body instead. And, you know, I'm always, um, I feel like my clients, when I work with them, um, they come into my, my, uh, our appointment together and they have zoomed in on, um, it's often food and exercise, right? In diet culture, it's usually what I'm eating and am I moving my yep. body in this mathematical equation we've been sold, right? And then they come in and we widen the lens to talk about all of the things um, that impact health and well being. How are your relationships? Do you get outside? What's your air quality like? Um, do you, um, you know, have connection. How, how good are you at saying no? Like, why are you going to say no to the cookies if you can't say no to the PTA meeting or your boss or like, why is no suddenly going to show up in, in relationship to, to food when it doesn't show up in any other area of your life? And then, so we widen the lens and look Mm -hmm. at health through a really wide lens, relational, spiritual, emotional, mental, physical, and then they go out in this world and within 30 minutes of our appointment, they get all of this messaging and they yes. zoom right back in on food and, and exercise. and then they come in and we widen the legs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and they go, "Oh yeah, that's right. And you know, and when we don't have very deep roots in this work, it's really easy to get a strong gust of fat phobia or diet culture or healthism and it knocks you over and you really question yourself. People are going to gaslight you when you choose this approach. They're going to say, what are you talking about? That's not going to work. And what they mean work is you're not going to lose weight. Well, we don't know what's going to happen. Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah. I like this strong wind of diet culture. That's exactly what happened, right? People will come in, they'll do a couple of weeks worth of work, then they disappear they'll come back six months later, they'll start again. And it's, you know, I did that myself when I healed my own relationship to food, right? Start and and repeat until I, I had no choice, but to fully see that it wasn't the truth.
1: Yeah. And there's a real reckoning that we, we do with that. And I think often when people come in to explore this, some of you listening to this podcast right now, you're curious, you're interested, um, and you're not sure. And, and I think if we really haven't hit diet bottom and we're not really done, it's common for people to dip their toes in and, and then go diet and then dip their toes back in and then go diet. Most people wanna lose some weight before they do this work. It's common for people when they come in to see me to be straddling, they're coming over here to be nursed to talk about body trust and then they, and they're still going to their OA meetings or with their Weight Watcher meetings. So they're kind of straddling, yes. um, in part because they don't trust themselves and they don't trust um, this is so counterculture. They wonder if we're drinking the Kool-Aid when we're not drinking the Kool-Aid. Everybody else is drinking the Kool-Aid. But when you know, 90% of people are drinking the diet culture Kool-Aid and you're choosing a really alternative path and you don't have very deep roots in this, It's going to be hard So find a community, finding a community of people, finding people to connect with that that are choosing this path. It's really common for people um, to kind of show up to this work and want it for everybody else but themselves and Mm -hmm. to believe that there's a different set of rules for people like me. Um, And, you know, the wandering is part that people wander yes. away from it and they return, and and we like to say that the healing is in the return.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: That you may wander. We're you know we're recording this. I don't know when it will air, but we're recording this just a couple of weeks before um, the new year rolls around, and the siren song of the dieting <sighs> industry is so loud right now, and everyone like the magical behavior change time of year is right around the corner, and it's gonna be different. And it's not uncommon for people to find themselves dieting in the new year when they've worked with us for a while. And we had one client say, we we used to do a free talk on New Year's, like a couple days after the new year rolled around about starting the new year with acceptance instead of resolution. And she came in and she's like, I opened, she's like, I have to like confess. And we're like, we've known her (laughs) for years. And we said, what? She goes, they got me this year. I I ended up at Jenny Craig a couple weeks ago and I spent $250 and have a freezer full of Jenny Craig food now. And I, it wasn't until I got it home and I opened my freezer and I said, that's not me. And I closed the freezer and she's like, and now I have $250 worth of Jenny Craig food. But I couldn't, I couldn't, I did couldn't connect with the fact that I can't do this anymore, Hmm. that this doesn't work for me, that it doesn't work for anybody Um, And I think, you know, one of the things we reckon with is grief. You know, there's so much to grieve when we come to terms. And the reckoning of realizing we've been duped, that there is no evidence-based treatment for high body weight that has uh, sustained outcomes at 5 to 10 years, and that includes bariatric surgery, um, that we've wasted a lifetime pursuing something that's total and complete bullshit, that our families harmed us when this came up, that we've been harmed by doctors, that we've been harmed by so many people that we sought, we looked to for support. There's so much to grieve. And in that grieving, um, I think sometimes in that bargaining phase of grief, people start to pursue health but they're still colluding with the dieting mind.
0: Absolutely. And just for people, we did a podcast, Podcast 219, on this whole grieving process of leaving diet culture to So we won't go into the depth of that, but go back to Podcast 219, and uh, you'll understand all the stages that Dana is explaining right now. I want to move on to solution, and I want to talk about body trust, because that's the other big thing that you are sharing with the world. Um, can you talk about what is body trust and how it can help us?
1: Yes. Body trust. Um, so I started be nourished uh, 15 years ago or so with my business partner, who's a therapist. And we landed on the word body trust um, after a while of doing this work um, because at the end of the day, it seems like it's an issue of trust mm-hmm. that we're born into this world trusting our bodies. We don't worry about food. We don't worry about eating. We don't have a cupcake and wonder if how many you know how how many steps I need to take to burn it off. Um, you know, we we we're not in this obsessive um, hyper state when it comes to food. And we trust our bodies to sort out the weight, right? And then somewhere along the way, this, this trust gets um, disrupted. And we like to say that body trust is a birthright. Um, And so often by the age of 10, the people we work with, it's by the age of 10 that they've received the message that there's something wrong, and that they can fix it if they hustle hard enough. And sets them up for a lifetime of hustling. And so body trust is the kind of umbrella term we use to to describe the the work we do to help people reclaim their bodies and come home. And really start to, you know, turn the volume on all of the noise um, so that they can decide for themselves what health means to them what way of eating makes them feel good and is sustainable for them and, and what other forms of care help them feel their best. So, and I look, another thing I want to say about body trust, you know, so in some ways we're listening to the body and we're acting accordingly and we're trusting the body to sort out the weight. And when we've had disrupted relationships with food in our bodies, this trust that we're reclaiming is um, reciprocal, that your body is working on trusting you to give it enough to eat of enjoyable foods while you're working on trusting your body to to deal with the food that you eat, right? And so it takes some time because we don't just go, okay, I'm going to trust you now, especially Especially when we live in a culture that really doesn't trust us or our bodies. And if you have been assigned female at birth, the culture really doesn't trust your body. Um, and so, it, you know, we re- reclaim trust uh, and we reclaim our bodies the way we would with trust in any relationship in our life when it's been broken through small, consistent acts over time.
0: It's a process.
1: It's a process. And there's no place that we arrive it does get it you know when we um created we we have a document called um it's an image called uh, it, we call it the phases of moving towards a body trust practice yeah. and the and the image is a tree
0: yeah.
1: it's like a cogwheel tree and at the bottom of the tree there are roots and it says notice the roots of your body trust practice deepening and so through the through working through the core elements of body trust and the different phases that we go through, our our roots get deeper, and it's a lot harder to sway. We're able to hold our ground. Um, we we understand this more. We're not just doing this heady exploration of it. We're also embodying it. And I want to um, say one more thing is that somebody who's reclaimed body trust is not necessarily someone who is immune to having bad body days, that we all have bad body days, that we live in this culture. Um, but somebody who's reclaimed by trust knows how to navigate bad body days without being destructive,
0: mm-hmm.
1: without getting wrapped back into diet culture, without taking another trip in the diet cycle.
0: Can we define embodiment deeper? Because what I see often is that part of reclaiming our body trust and healing our relationship to food and body, we have to learn new intellectual processes and techniques and things of that nature, but we get stuck in the head and we don't actually drop it into the body, which is what's called embodiment.
1: Yes. Embodiment. I geeked out on this word for a couple of years. <laughs> I don't think I've written my own definition yet, but um, I can coming. say a, a few things about that. There's um, there's a James Joyce quote that says, "Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body."
0: Oh, that's
1: cool. so. You know, just because we're physically in a room somewhere does not mean that we're present. Right. Like you can get like have a really scary driving experience on the way into work and you might be walking and you might have walked into your office and sat down at your desk, but your mind is in the past. You are not here. Right. I sometimes give the example of like once you learn to drive and you've been driving for a long time, you'll drive somewhere and you won't even know how you got there. Like oh my god, did I take the highway? Like which, and it's it's a little scary, frankly, right? So embodiment to me means that we're present, um, that we're below the neck, that we're not just walking around like floating heads in the world. And diet culture and and um, healthism disembody us. They mm-hmm. they cause people to live above the neck, seeking health information, nutrition information. I was in a workshop and the leader had us walk around the room leading with our heads. Yeah, that's and weird. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is what our clients do. How many calories? How many points? What's the right choice? Right. It's so disembodied. So embodiment is um, in one way to think about it is coming, getting below the neck. Coming. Uh, and, and Tara Brock says that when we enter the body, we're entering the wilderness, she says we're leaving um, the domain that is mapped and controlled by the brain and we're entering uncharted territory that we don't feel as, um, we don't feel as much in control over. And so it can be like entering the wilderness. And she says we are habituated to leave the body. Like we are our culture really disembodies us the way we give so much. um, We want kids to be smart. Right. And, you know, in the United States, we like let go of all the PE classes and stuff to make room for like the petty stuff, right. (laughs) More brain stuff. Um, And then, you know, we, we have experiences, trauma, um, oppression, various experiences will also disrupt the connection from the body. And so for people with trauma histories, um, they're um, doing more trauma work, working with a somatic uh, experience specialist, somatic movement specialist, somebody who can do some somatic work to help you get safely start to feel things below your neck. Like sometimes the hands and feet are the least scary of things Mm -hmm. to feel sensation. Um, But I think sometimes when people eat and feel food in their bellies, it's they panic because it's like they're suddenly
0: aware of their body for the first
1: time in a while. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Can we talk a little bit about trauma before we end the interview? Because there's something that is really important to us. We're trauma-informed. We don't help, like we're not somatic experiential trainers. So for me, uh, we just did an interview with Hirin Lyon. I don't know if you know her, but she teaches uh, online a somatic experience trauma healing program. But I believe that the way in which bigger body people, I call myself fat, so I'm comfortable with that name. I have been traumatized because of my body size. Like I carry trauma. I've never been sexually abused, never been violently abused, but I have been traumatized because of bullying, name calling, my parents putting me on the, that, that is trauma to my body. Is that the same point of view you share as well?
1: Yes, absolutely. Now, some of the, um, there's an, an ACES study about adverse childhood experiences and they don't count no. anything around racism, fat phobia, weight stigma, like nothing like that is considered trauma. And so they the, what they talked about in that study were like having parents with addictions yes. and having parents who are fighting all the time and moving a lot and which are traumatic experiences. But yeah, we, we need to include, Um, systemic oppression, um, body terrorism, safety, walking around the world. Are you going to get, you know, we want fat people to go to the gym where everybody's there trying not to be like them. Really? Are, are gyms really safe environments for, for people who don't adhere to narrow beauty standards? You know, my clients can't walk down the street without being harassed. So, there is uh, an impact uh, of those things over time, and sometimes they're more microaggressions, and sometimes they're macroaggressions, and the cumulative effect over of that over time impacts health. And you know, people who've studied weight stigma's impact on health have have actually found that what um, like what we're blaming on weight is actually the stigma of living in a larger body is causing the high blood pressure and the blood sugar dysregulation, not the high body weight itself, but the fact that people who, who walk around in larger bodies are so stigmatized and pathologized that that is what's impacting their blood pressure and their blood sugars, not the weight but we're not looking at that. Even the complications in pregnancy for higher weight people giving birth, we're not looking at the impacts of stigma on birth outcomes. Hmm. Nobody is looking at that. They're just saying it's because she's fat. No, it's because she's stigmatized and not getting the health care that they need. And not, I want to, I know not everybody who gives birth is female, but for those of us assigned female at birth, that's traumatizing to walk around this world socialized as female in this hustle to disengage from our own desires to our desirability, right? To no longer worrying about what we want, but being so hyper-focused on being wanted Hmm. to no longer thinking about what we desire but thinking about our desirability and our fuckability, yeah. right, this is a hugely disembodying. And I think the more, uh, you know, one way we come home to the body is to, to do some practices of being more embodied. Mm-hmm. And if you have a trauma history, um, dissociation is survival. Yes. You know, there's so much wisdom. If you've struggled with an eating disorder, you're, you know, your coping is rooted in wisdom. It's helped you survive. Um, and, and you know, doing some trauma therapy, working with the somatic experiencing stuff to, to slowly over time become able to feel sensations in your body as um going to be far more helpful than doing hunger work with a dietician or something like
0: that. Yeah. And it's all about when, and, and that's why I wanted to broaden the lens of trauma because very little people can understand what you and I can understand as far as trauma associated with body size, shape, and even races and sexual orientation, very little people can understand. And it, it's something that is present in every one of my conversation with women who've been struggling with their body is the impact of those moment. And and I want everyone listening to not deny that because it is extremely powerful. And it reshapes the way you engage with yourself. And that's part of the reason, as you said, we're going out of our body because it's too difficult to be in our body. It's not safe. Safe yes. physically, but safe emotionally as well. Like being in. Yep. Yes. So absolutely. I, we're gonna we have to close because we're running into the hour. And typically, I'm like forty minutes max. But this is so juicy, I wanted to keep going. <laughs> we could talk part two. Yeah, we, we'll have to do part two when you're available. <laughs> um, so where do people can find you? How do you work with people? Can you talk to us a little bit about this? Sure. Um,
1: so my website is benourished.org. That's the active phrase, beb org. I'm sure you'll put it in the podcast notes. Um, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. That's Those are the two platforms we use the most. We're on Twitter, but I, I wouldn't say our Twitter presence is
0: super. She's fighting on there. I don't go there because yeah. people just fight with each other. <laughs>
1: Yes, um, but yeah, you can find us at uh, Be Nourished PDX, I think, are those handles. Um, we offer um, kind of two tracks in our work. We work with the general public who are looking to heal, do their own healing work, and we have a variety of trainings for healthcare providers wanting to do this um, radical healing work in their profession and including a six-month certification program to become a certified body trust provider. Um, I am not doing uh, taking on new clients anymore. My private practice is really winding down and I'm focusing more on consultation and supervision and training of, of providers as well as doing more like group work and retreats for people, for the general public that want to do some, some deep work with Be Nourished and my business partner, Hillary Knavey
0: and i think it is needed because we have a huge uh uphill of training health practitioner in this field um and thank you for doing that work and that because and i always say to to my colleagues if we as practitioner can change our view and our practices automatically thousands of people get affected by this right? Instead of affecting one single person at a time, we can like quickly get through a lot of people. So thank you for doing this work. It is much needed. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for that. We'll put all the information into the show notes. And um, I know I follow you, I share a lot of your stuff on Instagram. So um, go and follow her. You and your organization have extremely thoughtful content that educate and moves people forward. So thank you for that as well.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. It was nice to talk with you. And we'll do part
0: two at some point. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thank you for being on the show.
1: Yes. Thank you for having me. Have a good day.
0: There you have it, ladies. Isn't that incredible? Now, I fully understand that for some of you, when you are faced with healthyism as a concept of the first time you probably will refute this because you're in it so I, so if that's you i totally get it take a deep breath this is not personal this is factual information uh, that you can decide what you're going to do with it perhaps you're going to put it aside and then when you're ready you're going to come back to it but the truth is In today's society, in this upgraded version of diet culture that is healthyism, it affects most of us. Now for the professional listening to this episode, there is a free class, a masterclass available um, on Google that Dana and her partner did that I would highly recommend you go and watch the link to that webinar. Which is titled "How Healthyism Overshadow Healing is actually in the show notes as well, so go to the show notes and then go watch that class it 's totally free um, and it 's specifically designed for professional as professional you can refute this, but know that refuting healthism actually will impact your client, so you have a level of responsibility. To move forward quicker into your understanding of healthyism, so you can look over your own practice and how you practice with your client and understand if that is causing damages, right? If you are, as a professional, entertaining and educating people on healthyism, which will have long-term a negative impact on their health. So I'll close this parenthesis for professional, and I'm going to give you a few questions uh, to take home for all of you, professional or not, self-reflection around healthism. So if you're ready, I'm going to give you five questions for you to reflect upon, to journal upon, to see how healthism shows up in your own life. Number one, do you judge yourself for not being as healthy as you think you should? Question two, do you think less of yourself for not being as healthy as you think you should be? Reflection number three, do you believe that one needs to work hard towards their health? Reflection number four, do you judge others? for not trying hard enough to be the healthiest version of themselves. And the last question, do you believe that everyone is capable to be healthy and it's their own fault if they are not? Reflect upon that, review the teaching from Dana and myself in the interview today, and then assess your own level of involvement in healthism. If you enjoyed the podcast today, please, please, please leave your review. I read every one of them and literally you light up my world. When I get a notification pop-up that somebody left a review and it means the world for getting this message out to other people. Our podcast is on a constant growth, which means more women are embracing this message. So thank you very much for this and next week it's going to be a solo episode of the next episode however you're listening to this 228 I'm going to teach about how we can strike a balance between self-care and healthism or the dangerous obsession of health I love you sister and I look forward to hang out with you on the next episode